Hey everyone, this is Augustus Cho. Welcome to part two of our previous episode. You're listening to Augustus Cho's Fry It Up podcast on the Nana Music Network. With the 11th pick in the 1996 NBA draft, the Golden State Warriors select Todd Fuller from North Carolina State University. So no centers were chosen in the first nine picks of the draft, and then we go back-to-back centers with Eric Dampier going to Indiana and Todd Fuller going to Golden State with the 11th pick. You actually got uh, drafted in the first round. Is that correct? Yes. So that's pretty impressive. I mean, you were very humble in the earlier part of the conversation, but, I mean, you won first round. What, what were your thoughts at that night when, you got, when that announcement was made? Well, it was 11th overall pick. Um, and that, that uh, when you asked me what was the biggest memory of my college, you know, I was thinking basketball playing, you know, at NC State. So I told you that well, beating Carolina number one ranked, that certainly is true, a, a true answer. But if you broaden the scope of the question to, you know, what experience just in totality from 92 to 96, the time you started at NC State to about when you, graduated making the transition out of NC State that that kind of time frame being drafted was right up there I mean it was just an incredible experience when you're sitting there in the green room behind the stage they put the guys in the green room with their friends and family because nothing's guaranteed until you're actually drafted but the NBA tries to talk to all the teams to feel like you get a sense of who's going to be picked and they stick them in the green room and and just like it's it's surreal you just you know don't you can't believe you're there and you have to kind of watch the own video to see yourself in it like yep i'm there and then when you, your name gets called it's like i felt like i um was watching every step it's like man i'm going up on this stage where i've walked watched like michael jordan and uh Bobby Jones and Larry Bird walk across at some point in time. So I was just kind of just, you're, you're nervous and you're in the state of this, this surrealism that it just, it's just hard to describe. It was just an awesome opportunity. What were your parents thinking at the time? Did they share that thought with you? I think they were just as like in a surreal world as I was. <laughs> um, but they were right there at the table with me in the green room and, um, just taking it all in as best they could and uh, being sharing that experience with me. I had several close friends at the table who I still know to this day. I mentioned Mike for the third time, you know, Jacksonville. And then, you know, he was Jacksonville last Saturday. He was one of the friends that was at the green room at the table. You know, all of that is just, uh, it's just, something you'll never forget. And it's just, I don't know if I'll ever have something that kind of surreal or if that's the right word for it again in my life. And it's um, just amazing experience. And just still to this day, I was just, I look back and just feel blessed to have been part of it. I mean, that you would say that was definitely a turning point in your life. Oh, for sure. I mean, anytime you go into becoming an NBA player, it's just like, you know, you could say you've arrived now. Of course, when you make it, yeah, I wanted to get better and improve as a basketball player, but it's, uh, 
it, it certainly was a a big step, a big sure. turning point. I've never played basketball, so I'm going to ask this question. Uh, when you were playing high school, from high school to college level, there's a jump there, right? And then obviously there's a jump from the college to NBA. Absolutely. How is that jump? Is it significant or is it subtle or what is it more mental? Or how would you describe that? Very significant. Um, Physically or mentally or how so? Both. Both very significant. I remember, I remember, th- you know, it, I want to say, you know, high school, I started to get really good. I had a 47-point game in high school. Okay, big deal. So you start to think, you know, as a 17, 18-year-old, okay, you know, NBA, um, it, it, it's just no – it's a big jump from high school to the ACC and a very big jump from college to the NBA. It um, – everything, mentally, physically um, – it's just, it, it's constant. And you got to keep in mind, you know, when I was in there, every team had, today the game has changed. You know, I watched the NBA. I watched, to be honest with you, Augustus, I watched very little during the regular season. When the playoffs hit, I'm watching it all the time. Because um, it's just, I learned to be an NBA player myself that, they play hard and go at it during the regular season, but then the playoffs is like a season unto itself. Um, so where am I going with this with respect to your question? That, like you said, the everything, certainly from a physical, physicality standpoint, athleticism, talent, mental, it's a big jump. From how, long, how long did it take you to make that jump, to, to make that adjustment physically? <laughs> it was constant. Mental? comment is at that time you know the, it's changed a little bit today you don't have you, you have great big guys you have with Milwaukee and you, know, you see in the finals how Giannis really developed as a big guy um it's just by the way I really just love watching Giannis play and I was tickled the Bucks won if for no other reason then you can still say look when a team has a dominant big guy that plays great defense and can score that really gives their team an advantage. No disrespect to great point guards, but I'm saying that because the NBA games changed from 30 years ago when I played. Big guys were everywhere. Every team you had a, a Duncan, a Robinson, a Shaquille O'Neal, an Akeem Olajuwon, a Patrick Ewing. I mean, these are guys, all century team players, you know, the greatest all time, all century team. And it's not necessarily true that today that you have a center on every team that's going to make the all-century team. Let's face it. So that was really just every night in, in college, if I played Tim Duncan, I did it maybe twice a year. And maybe Rasheed Wallace, but Rasheed, did, you know, he went on to become a power forward and a small forward, not really a center. But in the NBA, at least the time I was playing every night, I mean, you had – one or if not two great big guys and if you for some reason didn't it's because probably somebody was injured (laughs) that game (laughs) that uh you had a little bit of a mental and physical break in the nba but it was a big jump augustus a really big jump i mean you lasted six years i mean that's quite a feat physically and mentally so that's an accomplishment in itself 
Well, let, me, let me just uh, cover some highlights for, for people. So you played for Golden State Warriors. Did you enjoy that? I did. You know, people look back and say, oh, hey, y'all struggled to win games. I think we got to a point where we maybe won 31 games. There was so much turnover, some drama going on. I don't feel like Coach Adelman got a fair shot there because he was only there two years. And I always felt like and he was him and his staff was the ones that drafted me. I always felt like he was one of the best coaches that I, I've had, but I guess just the pressure to win, you know, he was supposed to be given five years. He got maybe two, if that, and he was already gone. Um, but I thought that with the warrior, every team that I played on the NBA has had, let's face it, it had things that I loved and things I didn't really like. Um, so even if I were to say, Oh, look at the Miami heat or look at Utah, you guys are almost, you know, made a deep playoff run, it um, things aren't always what they seem just because your team's winning, if that makes sense. It just, sometimes it's just where you're living, you know. Um, but every team that I played at, there were some things I liked and some things that I didn't like in the NBA. I understand. You mentioned coaching earlier uh, with Golden State Warriors. You had just talked about how the difference between NBA and college in terms of stepping up is there that much difference in coaching between NCAA coaching versus NBA coaching, or is it a difference of style? Um, I want to say they're both exceptionally challenging. And you got to keep in mind the, the, the collegiate game has moved more in terms of business and the revolving wheel. That's what we kind of call it as players. Coaches, you know, you could be a great coach, but if you're on on a team, I mean, look at Bryce Drew. You know, he was a coach at Vanderbilt, who I think is a, is a good coach, but they had their best player get injured at the wrong time and some things outside of his control that went down. And next thing you know, he's already out. Now he's now coaching at Grand Canyon University out in Phoenix. Um and they had a great year there last year, by the way, from what I saw. But it uh, it's challenging all the way around. I, I don't I don't uh, envy the job that a Division One college coach has or an NBA coach. It's um, you know some things can be outside of your control um, in both those areas in, in D one or the NBA, and you just you just don't know. You just have to. I mean, you see these coaches, it's just when you watch them. Um, when I played, I felt like I felt like the NBA coaches, and this, of course, was 20-something years ago, uh, but I felt like they were under a lot more stress, even if they put it upon themselves, because they knew they had to win. Um, when I was at NC State, we struggled. By my, my senior year at State, we had a pretty good team, and we were that close to, to being – really good winning 20 plus games we lost like eight games by a combined total of 23 points my senior year at nc state and you just look at les robinson he just kind of took it in stride and i think looking back he was just kind of the unusual coach that was confident in his ability even if things didn't work out due to factors outside of his control but it's just, it's just a revolving door. I mean, if you don't win these days, you kind of feel for these coaches, no matter how good they are. 
they're not going to stick around for more than two or three years if they're not winning, no matter how good they are. They may get a job at a different school or a different team, but it's just the way it is. Right. In terms of the system, all things being equal, do you think someone like Calipari can actually coach an NBA team with all the personalities and drama that's involved? Yeah, I think in the right situation, sure. I mean, it, a lot of it's situational. Um, you know, you don't know. It, it really, let's, let's be honest. You really don't know. I, I, take the smartest GM in the league. Let's just grab Mitch Kupchak. You know, he's been around a long time. I'm almost but old. Nobody as really as knows what's that. I'm almost old as he is, Mitch Kupchak. <laughs> <laughs> just as smart as he is, you really don't know when you got a new coach and a new player that have ever been together, an all-star, you just don't really know how they'll gel or if they're, if they will gel. They've gotten pretty good at doing some analytics and doing some interviews and psychological profiling and all that, but there's still no guarantee. Um, you know, when I, when I was at Golden State, my second or third year, we um, picked up P.J. Carlissimo when Adelman was dismissed. Seton Hall. Yep, and PJ and, and Latrell, you know, Spree just couldn't didn't get along. Um, and you know, he got along fine with Adelman. And it's just the the personality thing, I guess. I don't know what it was, but you know, you remember you probably remember the incident that happened with Spreewell and, and PJ. Just nobody ever could have predicted that was going to happen. You just don't really know how a player and a coach are going to gel. Or if they'll gel. I got you. Well, uh, some of the players you played with, Carl uh, Malone, what was he like when you played at Utah? Oh, I love playing with Carl. I mean, he, I mean, first of all, he, he invited me over to his house about every other day. <laughs> and I was a single guy at the time and he knew that. Um, so he like, really- hey, well, would come up to the house after the game and just hang out. And I was like, yeah, you know, most of the time I do it. And, um, he, he's a real down to earth guy, um, humbled considering what he, all he's accomplished. Oh yeah. I, I should know this, but I don't. Is Carl related to Moses Malone? <laughs> um, I should know that too. I don't, <laughs> okay. um, I don't think so. Coach, I can ask coach Jones, maybe he played with Moses Malone, um, my high school coach, Bobby Jones, but I don't know the answer to that with hundred percent certainty. I don't think they are. Speaking of management, like Mitch Kupchak, he had one heck of a, a run in L.A. Absolutely. Speaking of L.A., let's talk about Pat Riley. I, I think he was one of the most successful coaches uh, in NBA. I don't know if it was his persona, whether it was he, he just understood psychology of uh, professional players or what, but how was he to play for? What kind of coach was he when you met him in Miami? Well, he's just he's he's kind of like a coach K in the NBA. You know, he's got he's been around for so long and had so much success that he's he's just an icon. Let's just face it, and he uh, he knows so much about the game. It's uh, it's incredible. It just um, I mean, I miss not seeing him anymore. I miss the old uh, coaches with personalities like him with his hair slicked <laughs> back. I mean, I, I thought he was really a good coach. But what was his success caused uh, by? I think his success is a combination of things. I mean, let's face it. He, he has a force of character to want to win, and you, you have to have that as a coach or as a player to have success in, in the sport. Uh, and he manifested that through his players to, to want 
to, to them to win it, it, as much as it, to maximize that desire to win and have success. And, and let's also be honest too. He he got some really good players at the right time. I mean, who wouldn't want to have Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar <laughs> and James Worthy? You know, I'm not going to say you can just roll the ball out and those guys are going to win 50 plus games a season, but you know what I'm getting at. I mean, absolutely. He had, he had some talent. Let's face it. I thought that was the glory days of NBA when he had those players that you mentioned, especially when James Worthy went out there. James was one of these guys. He actually got three rings. He's got the uh, NCAA National Championship ring. He's got the Olympic gold ring and also the NBA ring. So, you know, he, he timed it just right. But, yeah. uh, you know, that's one of these things in life. And we will be right back after this important message. Hi, my beautiful people. I just wanted to let you know about a book that's helped me save a lot of money. The book is called How to Buy in Today's Digital World, Tips for Those Who Want to Save a Buck. This book provides step-by-step -step tips on how to save money on your online purchases. It also instructs you on making smart financial decisions when buying groceries, booking flights and hotels, plus lots more. I hope you get a chance to get your copy. I think you'll love it. And I know you'll save some money. Available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And we're back. I like his competitiveness. I think what makes Todd Fuller a good player in college will make him a good player in the pros. Uh, and he really does give us a guy who is not afraid to bang people inside. Well, when the season is all said and done with, I want to be able to look back and have a good feeling about this season, have a little bit of pride about it, and have a good feeling about what I've done, what I've done for this team, and have a good feeling about what the team has accomplished. Who was uh, your favorite player that you uh, played against that challenged you the most? Let me clarify this. The favorite to play against because <laughs> um, you found formidable, I guess, as our opponent. Well, I, well, Shaquille O'Neal and Hakeem Olajuwon, hands down. But I didn't like playing it because I knew you had to be on your game and then some, or they would eat your lunch that night. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they're just different players. I mean, Shaq would. Uh, I mean, Shaq is definitely stronger and bigger than. Uh, Elijah Wan, um, but it's just, just different players. You know, Elijah Wan, he's just amazingly quick. You know, his footwork, you know, I'd say every big guy, including Shaq, you could kind of, you know, back off a little bit and you were pretty confident they couldn't get past you 15 feet from the basket if you maybe had um, half blinked an eyelash. But with Hakeem, if you half blinked one eyelash, <laughs> he would be past you at the rim. That's how fast his footwork was. With Shaq, you know, he's just the kind of guy, he, he, those two guys were so difficult to play. With Shaq, you know, he, just the power and the strength that he had, he really just had to find a way to slow him down. Um, you know, I'll be honest, when I played Shaq and had some success when we played with the Jazz, you know, my mindset um, was – to slow him down, and you didn't want to make him – you didn't want to tick him off, let's just be honest, because if you ticked him off, it's kind of like waking the sleeping giant. Because there were times where Shaq, you know, he, he may play 40-plus minutes and, and four, four out of six nights, he may be getting a little tired. So 
you may be able to exploit certain things playing him, but if you try to overdo it in terms of biting up to him and, 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 and uh, being over aggressive and denying him positioning of the blocks and things like that, things you normally would do to other post players and be fine with it, you may get to a point where you just take him off and, and then he just clicks. And then I, I probably, I don't know if I'm probably not going to make sense to most of your viewers, but with, with Shaq, it was more of a victory if you could slow him down and slow his production down because if he was, you know, getting his 15 to 18 points on you and 10 rebounds versus 28 points and 15 rebounds, that often could be the difference between winning the game. Oh, yeah, it's called damage control. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when Dale, uh, when uh, Shaq played for Dale Brown in, uh, I guess, uh, LSU, I thought that Shaq was the original Zion Williams 1.0. And I thought they were going to win the national championship because who he was size-wise and physique. Yeah. But, you know, unfortunately, it never worked out for him. Now, Elijah, he, he played, he was part of the high, five, high, was high, high jammer, flying jammer or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did they win back in early 81, 82? Because I don't remember. They I don't think they ever won a time. I mean, NC State, uh, of course, ran up a two in 83. That, that, yeah, that's the, <laughs> that's in the Albuquerque. one. Albuquerque. In yeah. Albuquerque, yeah. With Clyde thought, Drexler. Oh, yeah. yeah. I thought NC State was going to get killed by uh, Houston with, with those players. But I could yeah. not believe it. I could not believe that NC State won that game. Oh, my God. That was better. That was unbelievable game. <laughs> Yep, five slamma jamma. That's uh, that was '83, and NC State pulled out the miracle. Yeah, oh, that that was that. I mean, that that was incredible, incredible season. That is. Or what we think is a miracle, but I honestly, to be honest with you, I really felt like NC State was just underestimated. I mean, you look at their, their squad in '83. I think I got their drink can up here behind me, but <laughs> list all the players: Thurl Bailey, yeah, yeah Lorenzo yeah, Charles. Yeah, um, yeah. I love all those guys. The list goes on. They had yeah. they had a talented squad, and I, don't, I just don't think the five slam and jam got all got all the attention, but they, they overlooked some of the talent maybe on NC State's '83 team. Valvano's highest moment, proud moment. Now, you went to play overseas for a while, right? What was your favorite city overseas playing? Oh, that, I have several. Um, my favorite probably is either Barcelona, Spain, or Melbourne, Australia. Ah, beautiful. Yeah, but there are several others. It, you know, I, I played, I lived in Poland for six months. And when I first got there, I'd actually left Spain. I'm like, what am I doing here? It was 70 degrees and sunny when I left Spain. And I'm here and it's 40 degrees. And it's dark by 4.30. But, you know, actually Poland, I grew to, the time I left there six months later, appreciated uh, a lot of the life and lifestyle in, in Poland where I lived. When you compare overseas basketball programs, professional level to United States. Where are they at? Oh, the, the, the gap is just closed enormously. And I think, you know, my perspective, I started playing overseas and I could see this. Um, if you remember the 2004 Olympics, when we got, I think we got the bronze medal, our USA men's team, it was a shock. You know, we got beat by Puerto Rico and then we lost to somebody else. I forgot exactly who we lost to, but we lost two or three times. And I think 
Did we even medal? Did we get a bronze in 2004? Yeah, something like that. I remember it, yeah. was, it was a shock. But it was a shock. And I was at those. I actually went to Athens and watched the game we lost to Puerto Rico. But I was telling myself that, to me, it was not a surprise because I had been playing overseas a couple of years at that point. And you could see these guys had a, a talent, a skill set that would challenge even some of the best NBA players. Now, the difference is, and still is to this day, it was and is, is athleticism. I think our top NBA guys, even our mid-tier NBA guys, they just have more athleticism. Uh, but that alone is not going to win you basketball games. Um, people know that, even those that don't play much of the game. And yet, if you have these guys overseas, you could see they, they will hit shots on you and hit them consistently, If you, especially if you leave them open. They can dribble, they can pass, I mean, wildly skilled fundamentally. They may be able to do a, um, you know, 360 dunk or dunk it, you know, 12 feet, take it off 12 feet from the rim. But they don't need to, you know, if the thing about it, overseas is a lot of these guys play together for so long, too, they get used to, they really gel and gel well as a team. So you can see that shift coming uh, even before 2004. We made some adjustments with USA basketball and came back in 08 and 12 and 2016. And we, of course, won the goal in 2020. But you can see it's not, I mean, it, the dream team thing of 92 is a distant memory. And I don't think we're ever going to see that again. That was just um, kind of a shock to the world. Now the world's, you know, you almost want to say caught up, but I think, you know, the rest of the world is always had, I mean, let's be honest, other than soccer or what they call football, in most places that you go to in Europe, basketball is the most popular sport. Um, second most if it is not already the most popular sport depending on what country you're in in most of these places in Europe and the rest of the world. I agree. Thanks for the insight. Let's talk about something that you enjoy enough about basketball. You uh, actually spent a lot of time mentor and uh, both near and far you, you've uh, like places like as you mentioned Australia and Ukraine on your website. Tell us about mentoring and, and the philosophy that you are trying to follow, what's going on there? The main philosophy with mentoring is, for example, I've been to the South Pacific twice and domestically, you know, I've done outreach um, with Youth for the Nations and it's similar. You want to, when you're dealing with when you go on these trips, you're mentoring, you're, you're working with, with people that are younger. So the first thing you really want to do is teach the coach, the, the, the young men and women who are going to coach or teach the youth how to do it. So, like for example, we went to Micronesia and spent two weeks there. We really had a camp for the coaches because we wanted them to try to model for them what it was like to be a leader as a coach. Not just to teach them the skills, but to teach them in, to develop their faith, to things to, we even had a little um, Micronesia, we were one of the islands there, the Department of Education was probably, um, 
a three-room building, the education secretary would come to our camp because he wanted to pick up nuggets. And we learned some things from him, but he would you know, we teach him some things too. Like, hey, it really starts with your coach, your cadre of young men and women who are going to be your coaches, many of whom were also teachers in the schools. So if you're able to impress upon them, not just like, I'm, like I was saying, the skills you need to teach them from a basketball standpoint, but how to manage time, how to get in the classroom, to have the right schedule and the right plan in terms of structure of classes during the day, the time of day to do the practice, then it, it, it boils down from there. You just can't go in I mean, you could do this, but you, you tend to have less than that. You just can't go right in and run a camp for little kids. You have to show those young men and women who are going to – because when you leave, even if you're at a place for three weeks like we were at Augustus, you're gone, and if you haven't really trained the, the young men and women, it'll be quickly forgotten what you did if you're just sitting there working with the younger kids. You want to show, you want to train the coaches of how to be the trainers, if that makes sense. That was one of the first things we emphasized when we went on these outreach trips. So like when you are mentoring in a place like Ukraine, do you use an interpreter? Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it depends on the location. Now, I'll tell you, to be honest with you, the Eastern European dialects are much more challenging. Like Spain, I, I learned to speak Spanish, especially at a basketball level. So I could, and like David Wood, for example, went, would, he was another NBA player who had gone a couple of these trips. He was very fluent in Spanish. So if you're going to working with a Spanish basketball camp or something like that, it's, it's, you can do it yourself. But um, David and I, we, we took a group. We went to the Ukraine. You had to have a translator. None of us knew Ukrainian. Um, Micronesia, Palau. Uh, Coach Rye, Yap, the islands out in, way out in the Pacific. They knew English. Those are basically English. Um, they're not U.S. states, but they're um, territories. They're independent governments. So the, the English language is spoken there. Now, since you've been to Ukraine and you uh, mentored there, do you have any thoughts on what happened to Ukraine subsequently with uh, Ukraine being invaded by Russians? So what's, the what's your first question? Now you've been to Ukraine and you mentor there. So you know some people and what it's like to be in Ukraine. Subsequently, Ukraine has been invaded by Russia, right? Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Well, the political perspective of Crimea, I think you're referring to Crimea, where the Russians, um, I mean, they, from my understanding, <laughs> they... Um, like the Russian government tried to act like they weren't involved, but basically it's their fingerprints were all over that. Um, I don't know what perspective, the political perspective, we were there just from a basketball standpoint and never could have imagined that their country would have been essentially invaded. I do know I'm kind of in history myself. So we were in the capital, most of our time in the Ukraine was spent in Kyiv. Many Americans call it Kiev, K-I-E-V. It's actually pronounced Kiev. Um, so Kiev is the capital, and that's just, what, 70 miles from Chernobyl. Um, your older listeners have been around long remember the Chernobyl incident in the 80s. But also, you got to keep in mind, too, that from the historical standpoint, 
the Ukraine, when the Soviet Union broke up, see, I've been to one of the first basketball trips I ever did was back in 1993. I just finished my freshman year at NC State, and we took a team of ACC All-Stars um, um, after, I'm sorry, after my sophomore year, ACC All-Stars to Brazil, but after my freshman year, we went with an outreach trip called SCORE. Uh, SCORE is an acronym. It's a ministry slash basketball outreach. In 93, we went to Russia, and that was just after, not too long after the Berlin Wall and the, the Soviet Union had fell apart. In fact, the city we went to in Russia in 1993, that summer with SCORE, was a city called Samara. It used to be called Koydeshev during the Soviet Union. Why am I bringing this all up? Because if your viewers are into history, they'll know that as part of the agreement uh, that when the Soviet Union dissolved and broke up in these individual countries, Ukraine being one of them, the Russians had an agreement that if most of the Soviet's nuclear weapons were stored or housed in Ukraine. And so here's what I'm going with it. When the Soviet Union collapsed, essentially, the Russians said, hey, we, uh, if you give us the nuclear weapons, control of those back, you get to have your own country, Ukraine, and you give us the nuclear weapons, we will promise to never invade you. Well, that didn't happen, did it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think even our, our, our press here in the United States, when that went down, very few press outlets brought that up. And to me, I'm, I'm getting off on a tangent here in the geopolitics, but it was just unfortunate that Ukraine, you know, <laughs> had they had their own nuclear, kept those nuclear weapons, you kind of had to wonder if they would, the Russians would have thought twice about taking over Crimea. But here we are. I hear you. And we will be right back after this important message. about your annual Todd Fuller Mathematics Competition? So the math competition that uh, started back in 2002, if I recall, it, it went on, I think it, it uh, went on for 15 years. And it started with um, Dr. Griggs, who I mentioned previously in this recording um, on the show, Dr. Griggs was the head stats guy. Um, but he came to me with an idea. It's like it, it, we have NC State every year has a annual math competition. And it's usually held on orientation. Uh, I think they call it orientation day. It's the day where students in high school, they're interested in attending NC State. They come and tour the campus in the fall of that year. So they time it on that day where they have a contest for high school students to compete where they do it to, do essentially a math test, but the problems are super hard. It has to be to, to find a winner, and the winner gets scholarship money. And they have team a team competition too. So that's kind of how that all started, and it just ran for many years. And 
I was a sponsor in that. And typically I would fly up or drive up to, to show up that particular Saturday when they had the math competition to say a few words and to congratulate the winners. But it was, here is, a, you know, it'd be a nice Saturday. It could be 70 degrees and beautiful fall weather. And you have 75 to hundred high school students locked in a, in a, in a big auditorium style classroom taking this super hard math test to see if they could win uh, scholarship money. <laughs> um, and, the, and the math problems were made by Dr. Griggs and by another math professor, Dr. John Frankie. Um, they both since retired now, but they made those questions super hard because um, they'd give me copies of the tests and the answers. And I'd be like, ah, I look at it, I'm going to struggle with these. <laughs> um, but that's how that all started. Wow. That's, that's uh, very impressive, you know, to get these young people to take such high level tests and succeed. I think NC State has a great, great uh, future in terms of students. Yeah, they do. I, I, I've always been high on a university and, and they, when you look at the jobs, the job data that comes out, typically, you know, NC State fares well. They, they, they place graduates in good jobs and good well-paying and in good jobs that pay well. Um, they both the bachelor's level, master's and, and so forth. Yeah, excellent graduate school programs. And unlike the 70s, you actually have female students. Maybe half of it are female now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. You're also involved uh, at one point with uh, Charlotte uh, Douglas Airport as an advisory board member. Tell us about that. What was that about? That's another cool thing. I, I mentioned or touched on previously in your show today that you know, I'm a pilot. Aviation is kind of in my blood. And like you said, I was appointed by the Charlotte City Council back in 2008 uh, to be on the Airport Advisory Committee. And the Airport Advisory Committee, at least at the time, as a city council committee um, whose job it was to basically oversee Charlotte Douglas International Airport uh, or CLT. Many of your viewers probably have flown through Charlotte and they just get their bag tag and it has CLT on their, their baggage tag. And that was just a cool opportunity to not only be fortunate to be appointed by um, two or three city councils. I first stepped in in 2008 and started, and then I was, I think, reappointed in 2010 and I think in 2012. And by the end of my five years, the airport advisory committee had been dissolved and the airport commission had been started by the state. But anyway, that really is just a neat experience. It was for me in that it blended aviation with business and to be a part of the airport it's at a time where it was growing very quickly. When I started in 2008, we had two parallel runways and you had US Airways and American Airlines. And by the time I left in 2013, we had triple um, parallel runways, um, a new control tower. And then many of your viewers will remember US Airways and American Airlines merged um, U.S. Airways no longer exists. That's because it's merged and became called the new American Airlines, but it kept its hub in Charlotte. All the U.S. Airways airplanes got rebranded into American with the red, white, and blue flagscaping that you see on the side of their jets. Um, so I was there through all of that. And then in 2010, CLT was uh, named uh, the world's, it's given what's called the Eagle Award. The Eagle Award 
the Eagle Award is given each year to an airport that is considered the world's best airport by the International Air Transport Association, the IATA. The IATA is basically a global conglomeration of 200 plus airlines. Um, and they vote every year. In 2010, Charlotte was given the Eagle Award and voted world's best airport. So it's just really neat to see just airport operations on the inside. And many of your viewers, I don't know where they're scattered about geographically, but if they're on the East Coast, they've probably flown through CLT. And CLT, a lot of people just don't know this, it is the seventh, it kind of jockeys between six and eight, but it's basically around the seventh busiest airport in the world by takeoffs wow. and landings. Wow. What we call operations, but operations is takeoffs and landings. You know, everybody's heard of O'Hare and Atlanta Hartsville. Those are one, two by passenger count, the number of passengers that come in and out. But Charlotte, because for a couple of reasons, CLT is basically situated in the middle of the Atlantic seaboard. You're halfway to New York, you're halfway to Miami. So that's a convenient place to put a hub. But also unbeknownst to most people is that this is where we got, got involved with the Airport Advisory Committee and the, the management of Charlotte Douglas International Airport kept the cost to the airlines really low. Um, folks should never have a clue of what goes on behind the scenes with this, but it all boils down to what the airline, what does American Airlines have to pay per gate per passenger? And Charlotte had the lowest, just over a dollar per passenger, the airlines were paying to the city to gate the airplanes there. You look at Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh many years ago had a hub and that's long since disappeared. Some of your viewers may be like, oh yeah, what happened to the hub in Pittsburgh that used to be with US Airways? How come American's not there? How come American doesn't have a hub in RD? Well, Pittsburgh, they kept raising their costs to the airlines. I think it went up to over $15 a passenger. And that just crushes it. You know, if you're, when you get inside the business, inside airport operations and the airline, if you bump up their cost from a dollar per passenger to just two or three dollars per passenger, you, you might lose dozens, if not hundreds of flights. And then when you start doing that, you start losing the taxi cab drivers. They get mad because there's, less business, not as many people flying through, less restaurants, less ancillary businesses open in the airport terminal and around it. So it really just boils down to cost per passenger to the airline. That's, that's what you meant when you wrote that the CLT has the lowest cost per passenger to the airlines of just $1 Correct. while the national average is $10. Correct. And that's most people never see that. They just pay their, you know, what is an airline ticket cost to fly domestically? Around 250 to 300 bucks is what you may, you go on Expedia.com and book your flight, you know, to Charlotte, to Chicago or whatever. And a portion of that is it's recouped by the airline to pay to move you, the passenger, to that airport. It varies by location with that specific city charges. And if it's a dollar in Charlotte versus $5 in Raleigh-Durham, let's say, I don't know exactly what it is in Raleigh, but the airlines in a heartbeat, it only seems like you're like, oh, it's only four bucks. What does that matter? Well, when you're moving 
millions of passengers a year, just that three or four dollars difference, Augustus, makes sure. a difference in millions of dollars on their balance sheet. And they will not hesitate sure. to yank a hub or drop flights from a city left and right. And I really want your viewers to know that they want, you know, a vibrant economy in their local market where they live is to support their local airport, even if it's a smaller airport, and to keep that cost low per passenger that the local government is charging the airline, because that makes all the difference in the world. And this is all part of your mathematical <laughs> assessment, right? We just take a rocket scientist to figure that one out. You know, I'm the airline CEO and the board, I'm paying a charge of the dollar at Charlotte versus $3 over here times a million and something or more passengers a year. I'm, I'm sticking with Charlotte. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Not complicated math on that one. You're almost a nuclear uh, engineer. So that, that, what we're talking about dovetails nicely with my last question to you, which is, talk, I want you to talk about, you have your private license, uh, right? As a pilot. And I believe you may even be instrumental certified. So which is right. quite an accomplishment. So with that, you are doing something very uh, altruistic. Tell us about what you do with Angel Flight. Well, yeah, like you said, um, Augustus, I'm a certificated private pilot instrument rated um, with what's also called high performance complex endorsement. That basically means you can fly more powerful airplanes that have landing gear that retract. Um, but again, it's just, I've been blessed to be able to do that for a long time. My first training flight was actually the day after Christmas in 86. I was just 12 years old. That was my first official training flight. Um, but today, what do I do with it? Um, angel flights, I, these are organizations that provide non-ambulatory air travel. Let's say you got a person who needs cancer treatment and they're going to the cancer treatment center in Noonan, Georgia. Or the last one I did, ironically, was in Jacksonville, North Carolina. And I just flew myself there to the card show that, that you were at a few days ago. But there was a young man and his mother that they needed transportation to the burn center, the Shriners Hospital in Greenville, South Carolina. And sometimes it's difficult, you know, for some of these patients to travel over road versus just getting there. You know, they may have to travel over road. The road conditions may be bumpy, you know, five, six, seven hours versus just getting there an hour and a half. It makes all the difference in the world for these, these patients that need their cancer treatments, that need their care at the Shriners Children's Hospital, whatever the case may be. And honestly, I look to get into even more of it is, you know, um, right now kids take up a lot of time in the job and that's great. But, you know, when I get older, I want to do more of that kind of thing, the angel flights to, to give back to our community. Well, thank you for doing that. I think it takes an angel to do such a uh, work. So thank I appreciate you. that very much. And I hope uh, you will be able to fulfill your desire, as you just said. So in closing, what's next for Todd Fuller? What's next for, for me? Well, <laughs> it's a day-by-day -day thing. Uh, so it's uh, getting my new forecast into my executives at Bank of America. <laughs> October is almost here. So... That's a half joke, but uh, I don't have any major plans right now. I, you know, that could change. I'm just, 
you know, wouldn't wouldn't be the best employee I, I can for the bank, the best dad, the best husband I can be. And who knows what, what could be down the road, you know, with public service or something else. Um, I don't know. It's just, you know, for me, it, it, it's doing what I can the best of my ability on a daily basis. And just for the record, you are a vice president at Bank of America, right? Yes, that's my current day job. I would love to see you run for United States Senate for North Carolina. I would love to see that, that happen. Well, thank you. Uh, public service is uh, not that far from my heart. You know, I guess I want to say I'm not afraid to um, get involved in in um, public service and matters that are sometimes difficult to talk about. And you know, we can get into a whole other session about COVID and, and masking and all that. Augustus, I've seen yourself. You've been in public service and serving chapel hill town council or commission things like that right well when you're a republican in a city town dominated by democrats the numbers just aren't fair so <laughs> but in order for me to be chairman of the uh, orange county republican party part of the job is as recruiting uh, candidates to run for office in the county level and unless i run i can't ask somebody else to run so i wanted to lead, lead by example and you know, the numbers just aren't there, it's not gonna happen, but at least I'm not a hypocrite, but I would love to see someone like you run for uh, public office. And I think uh, Senate or Congress would be, would be perfect. Uh, I'm just curious, uh, which, which way do you lean, or left or right? Oh, certainly right. Okay, well, in that case, you definitely want you to run for office. And when you do, I will support your candidacy. <laughs> Thank so, you. Uh, I mean that, that. I mean that, uh, I mean that. Sincerely. All right. With that, uh, we thank Todd Fuller for sharing your open, uh, sharing your life with us. And my guest demonstrates today what is possible in life with dedication, focus, faith, and good genetics. And as always on Friday podcast, Todd, may your life journey experience happiness, health, and inner peace. And this is Augustus Cho over and out. <laughs>